um, well, good morning. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I'm, my name is Ronnie. And if you're just now joining us, we've been in a sermon series in Hebrews. And this morning, we're in chapter 11, which is um, like perhaps the most famous chapter of the book of Hebrews. It's sometimes called the Hall of Faith. Uh, why? So what you find in chapter 11 is that it catalogs a number of people in the Old Testament whose lives and deaths were characterized by great faith. And as you study each person, you realize that the life of the person is actually less important. What's more important is the object of their faith. So the focus is on the object of these people's faith. It's the object of their faith that drives them to do these really incredible things. So today we're going to be looking at, as we just heard from our reading, um, the life of Abraham and his wife Sarah. And uh, Abraham is really kind of this incredible figure. To my knowledge, he's the only figure of history that is considered like the central paradigm of faith for three religions, right? So for Christianity, for Judaism, and even for Islam. So he's a big deal. So we're going to look at him a little bit closer this morning. Now, some of you, um, like when I say that we're going to look at his faith and talk about faith, you think to yourself, yeah, you know, pastor, isn't that a little bit cliche, right? Uh, isn't, it, isn't it cliche for you to just talk about faith? And isn't that kind of a crutch for like weak-minded people? Uh, I suppose that's one way of thinking about it, but, I, but even the most secular people I know will seriously consider the role of faith when life turns really difficult, right? You know, I've never met a person who has laid on their deathbed who's disinterested in the topic of faith. Or perhaps even more difficult, it's when you're beside the bed of the person who's on their deathbed. Maybe it's a loved one. Maybe it's a child. Maybe they're just um, on the brink of death. And somehow in that moment, meditating on science, meditating on evolution just doesn't cut it, right? Just doesn't do it. If faith is not a relevant topic to you right now, it will be. You know why? Because life is hard. It's really hard. I mean it. Whether you're poor or whether you're rich, whether you're white or Mexican like me or black or Asian, it doesn't matter. It is hard. There is nothing certain in this life except for death. And so in a world that's like riddled with uncertainties and pain, like how should we live? Should our fears and anxieties enslave us? Or can we like live truly free? These are questions that the original audience had as they were receiving the book of Hebrews, right? See, these are people who were being persecuted. Their lives were in danger. Their reputations and their fortunes were at stake. When they walked out of the front door of their house, while being loyal to Jesus, there were very real and present dangers for them. And so what happened is it created these massive feelings of uncertainty and anxieties in their heart. These are the kind of people who lay down on their bed at night, and, and no matter how tired they were, they can't sleep, right? They're, they're lying on their bed, and their mind is racing. They just can't stop thinking because it's filled with anxiety. 
God was calling them to live a certain way, but the uncertainty was really overwhelming. Like, does this sound like familiar to anyone? So the author of Hebrews, he understands like this dynamic and he offers us this example, this paradigm of faith in Abraham. And the faith of Abraham is great, but how come? So that's what we're going to explore this morning is the anatomy of Abraham's faith. There's kind of two parts. It's a two-part sermon today. It's real simple, trust and hope. These are words I've been using a lot lately, so we're going to keep looking at it. I think we're going to find more even this morning, so trust and hope. So let's go ahead and just jump right into the trust. So the author of Hebrews, he begins in verse 8 by citing the story of Abraham that, you, that begins in chapter 12 in the book of, of uh, Genesis. Now, if you were to read, I've read like several commentaries on chapter 12, and all the commentators like see the same thing. Abraham acted on God's call on his life without all of the information, right? And so verse 8 picks up on this by saying that he or Abraham went out not knowing where he's going. Now don't miss it. It's subtle. The fact that God did not reveal all the details to Abraham is extremely important. It's an important feature of his faith. And let me explain to you why this is pretty uh, amazing. So Abraham's like this rich guy. He lived in Haran. It's part of like the Fertile Crescent, if you can imagine that. Uh, His life was happy, safe, wealthy, and comfortable. And he was in control. Then God speaks to him and says, hey, Abraham, go. And Abraham says, you know, well, uh, where are we going? And he's like, I'll tell you later. That's what God says. And Abraham just obeys him. Now, he didn't have all the details, but he did have God's calling on his life, right? He did have God's word. And so he went, and he lived like a pilgrim, right? And he did this, like, for several years. He never settled down. He lived in tents for years, you guys. He left his mansion to live in a tent without any details of the voyage, only the word of God, only the call. Now, why did he do this? If God would have given Abraham all the details, then Abraham would have obeyed him based on the adequacy of the plan, right? Or his circumstances. That that is to say, if he would have obeyed God, if he would have obeyed God because it looked practical, or uh, he would have obeyed God because he decided it was personally advantageous, Abraham would have made the decision to obey God or not based on the circumstances. And so his obedience, the fact that he still obeyed without all of that information, helps us to understand actually a Christian view of faith, right? Let me illustrate some of the implications. So in the last hundred years, there's been this shift, right, from uh, modernistic thinking to post-modernistic thinking, or maybe it's post-post now, But in principle, a modern person was understood as um, being someone who's concerned about truth. And not just any truth, but like universal truth. But over the last, I don't know, 30 years or so, a sort of a younger generation is growing up. And and postmoderns don't care so much if something is universally true. They only care if it is true for them personally, 
right? This is a kind of private and subjective truth, right? This is the triumph of expressive individualism, right? It's, have you ever heard the saying, hey, just follow your truth? Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about, right? People didn't used to talk like that. They do now. Now, with this kind of shift, um, there is a way people are changing the way they actually look at religion. So when people look at Christianity, they ask the question, does it work for me? Will it make me a successful human being? Will it help me to achieve my goals? And so, right, there's been this resurgence of like the mega churches, right? You'll see this all over the world. They're all over the United States. And uh, so sociologists are asking like, what's the deal with all of this? Why the rapid growth? And what they're finding is, is that the message is changing. So for instance, in my hometown where I grew up in Houston, Texas, there's this pastor named Joel Osteen. And when you drive through Houston, there's these big, unfortunate billboards that say something like this. Do you want a successful life? Come to Lakewood Church. Or worse, there's like this picture of this man kind of like with his arms up in victory. And it says, bringing out the champion in you, right? This kind of rhetoric is extremely successful for getting people in church because it converts Christianity into a tool for improving your life and meeting your personal goals. That's why he has a big church and we have the church we do. We might not ever get there. Just heads up. Uh, But listen, that billboard... That wouldn't have worked for Abraham. He left a successful life. He left a wealthy and fertile land to go to the desert. This would not have worked with the original audience of Hebrews either, right? For them to choose to follow Jesus resulted in persecution, right? When they thought about God, and and, and Tim Keller has helped me make this point, he says, they, they didn't ask the question, does it work? That's not what they were asking. What they asked is, is it true? That's the question we have to start with. Is it true? Is it real? Is God there? See, if it's true, it doesn't matter if it works. It doesn't matter if it's practical. If it's true, we must come to God because he is there. And you have to start with that question for it to be real faith. Because if you don't start there, you'll never truly love God for himself. You'll reduce Christianity and God himself to a tool to help you improve your circumstances. You'll tend to love the benefits of the Lord instead of loving the Lord, you see. Some people will say, listen, I I can't respond to the call of God unless I know exactly where I'm going or unless I know the life that I'm going to get, but that will never work. Faith means that you love God more than you love life, you see? Faith says, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what life will bring, but I do know who will be with me, and that, that's enough. Faith says, Jesus, you are better than life. And I trust you, not my circumstances. See, what we see with Abraham is this. The faith of Abraham was built on trust 
Abraham trusted God. He didn't have all the answers to his questions, but it was enough to know that God was there. How about you? Like, think about this with me. Is your faith built on your trust in the Lord? Like, do you trust him? Let's consider a second aspect of Abraham's faith. So we looked at trust. Let's move to hope. So Abraham, he didn't receive an answer to his question, God, where are we going, right? But that does not mean that his soul was sort of this empty vacuum, right? In verse 10, if you look there, we learn a little bit more about his faith. It says in verse 10, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. So, right, so Abraham, he's not a stoic. He didn't, like, try to suppress his emotions. He was very much human. He was a pilgrim following the call of God, but he traveled with this immense amount of hope. Hope, you guys, is just as important as trust. In fact, trust isn't going to even work for you unless you have hope. It's equally important. So for Abraham... God cultivated in him this deep longing for his, like, true city, to put it that way. He knew, but he knew that his citizenship was somewhere else. Now, some of you, um, you can hear and read between the lines. You're a little bit uncomfortable because you know I'm talking about heaven, right? Isn't Isn't that what we're talking about? It's this new and better existence in the very presence of the Lord, heaven. Now, heads up, Christian, this Christian doctrine of heaven is one of the most comforting and most divisive doctrines in the whole Bible. Uh, some of you, I know, are actually still investigating Christianity, and I'm really honored that you're here exploring Christianity with us. And and let me just say, like, DPC is the safest place to just explore the faith. I mean, the people here, I hope you're listening, are so warm and so compassionate. We don't have all the answers, but man, we will walk with you. This is a great place. We're really honored that you're here. But hear what I'm saying. When I say the word heaven, it actually makes some people uneasy because we're uncomfortable with its permanence. It's permanence. Y'all remember, we keep talking about the sentiments of Karl Marx, right? He's like, ah, religion, heaven, those are nothing more than an opiate for the masses. Heaven cannot be reconciled with reason. It is not rational. That's, that's an interesting observation. The words rational And irrational are important words, especially when we think about our human experience. And let me explain. The doctrine of heaven is not a doctrine that just becomes relevant all of a sudden when you die. Heads up. It is actually a doctrine that presses into us right now. In other words, the future hope of heaven shapes our present lives. How so? Well, let me tell you first how it should not affect us. It's worth saying. The doctrine of heaven should not be used within the sort of threat reward system, right? That is to say, we don't, we don't look at people and say, if you're a good boy, you go to the good place, and if you're a bad boy, you go to the bad place. Like, don't 
do that, right? Although I am embarrassed, some of us grew up in churches that that was the message, and I'm sorry. That's just not the case, though. It actually perverts the view of the gospel because Christianity is not a merit-based religion. It's really important for you to be super clear on this. That line of thinking, actually, that merit-based system makes Jesus unnecessary, and it might actually lead you to the conclusion that you are a good person in yourself. You're not. You're a mess. I know. I know. I'm your pastor. Me too. We are a hot mess. So if that is, in fact, an incorrect view, how is heaven supposed to shape our faith? Well, when you look around the world, who are the people who, um, who most inspire us? They're the people who act irrationally, right? James K. Smith makes this point. He says, like, you know, think about, think about Martin Luther King. Well, I mean, why would he willingly, joyfully forfeit his safety, his money, his reputation? Why would he do that and end up dead? Why would he? Why? It seems so irrational. Think about Mother Teresa. I mean, why would she get, willingly give up a life of comfort to care for lepers and orphans? Like, why? Those are just two names of thousands of truly great people. Why would they sacrifice their comfort and security and even their lives? I mean, where did they find the emotional resources to speak out against injustice when it came at such a personal cost? And this is where that word irrational becomes really important. These people were being irrational only if this life is all that there is. You hear that? If this life is all that there is, then the rational decision is to accumulate money, comfort, and safety. The rational decision would be to make this life your heaven. In the words of the transcendentalists like Emerson or Thoreau, carpe diem, seize the day, right? According to them, why should we seize the day? Because the future is uncertain and we should scale back our hopes and celebrate today because today is all we have. Or like the Greek Epicureans, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die and it all ends. Those slogans are rational, right? If this world is all we have, that is totally rational. Protect yourself. Spend your money on yourself. Don't risk. Do whatever you want. Be self-addicted for tomorrow we die. Living like that requires no faith. The problem is, if you act rationally, you'll never truly love I mean, you might taste a kind of selfish love, but not the true, unconditional, sacrificial love. And do you know why? Because love is irrational. Love will cause you to sacrifice your life and give up your comforts. Love will empower you to speak out against injustices, even if it costs you personally. So let me revisit my original question. Where do people find the emotional resources to make decisions that put their lives, their fortunes, 
their resources in jeopardy and then to serve God. Well, Abraham teaches us that it was in the hope of a life that's better than this one, of a city, verse 10, whose foundations is God, whose designer and builder is the Lord himself. How does this work? Charles, the great Charles Spurgeon, kind of illustrates this. Let me kind of modernize it a little bit. Imagine if all you have is um, $300 in the bank, Jason's like, I'm not imagining it. That's all I got, right? Uh, (laughs) uh, He took a vow of poverty, everyone, and his uh, supervisor is a real doozy. Um, Imagine you have $300 in the bank and someone steals $200. Now, how's that going to make you feel? I mean, furious, but more than that, like despairing and desperate. But imagine you have a second account, you know, a Swiss account that holds $6 billion. It's yours. Now, how do you feel about that $200? Right? I mean, of course, it's a little bit unnerving. It bothers you. Of course it does. But your livelihood is not at stake. I mean, you're not going to be unraveled by it, right? I mean, how mad could you possibly be knowing that you have this other account? That's how future hope interprets our present lives. If you only have $300, then you have to protect it. But if you have a second account, then you're free. Then you're free to risk, right? More specifically, if this life is all that you have, there are very few resources to live a risky and great life. Because you have to protect yourself. You have to, and you're going to find it very difficult to listen to the call of God in your life. You're going to find it very difficult to do that. You'll find it very difficult when God wants to interrupt your life and make you a little uneasy. That's why hope is a necessary ingredient in your faith. Faith without hope will result in lives that look exactly like our non-believing neighbors. Fine people, but average. Without hope, it's really easy to be self-addicted and it's hard to be generous and risky. Do you, do you look forward to the city of God whose foundations are built on his love and wisdom? I mean, do, are you like dream about that day? I mean, like seriously, like slow down for just a second. Do you long for it? Or are you afraid of it? Does the city of God, where the warmth of Jesus' love replaces the sun and warms our skin, does that like enchant your heart? Man, I would just beg you, like, don't. Don't avoid this topic. To the extent that your heart is saturated by that hope, this city of God is to the extent that you can live a free life on this side of heaven. Anxiety about money, anxiety about sickness, anxiety about our children, anxiety about your loneliness, 
anxiety about your future plans, all these things will loosen their grip on you. The emotional paralysis will slowly go away and you'll be free, free to live, free to sacrifice, free to love, free to die, free to have faith and to listen to Jesus more than you listen to your social media feed or what your culture tells you. Can I just, let me conclude with a few extra thoughts and I only had a two-point sermon, so I'm going to, I want to take a little bit more time to teach you, show you one more thing that has caught my attention. So the, the faith of Abraham, his faith was characterized by, right, by trust and hope. Because of that kind of faith, right, he, Abraham lives this incredible life, one that, like, guys like us are still talking about today. I'm on a stage talking about this guy's life. It's incredible. And in, he, did, he had incredible faith, even though the circumstances were really unnerving. They're difficult. And the thing is, is Abraham did not get paid for his faith. And in fact, verse 13 says the exact opposite. Look at verse 13. He says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Abraham, like, never saw the fruit of his faith. Not on this side of heaven. And you know what? It's like totally okay. Because here's the thing. For Abraham, the real treasures, they were not the promises of God. The real treasure for Abraham was God himself. And with that, Abraham was paid in full. He's like paid in full. And that is the key to living a life of faith. The important thing is not faith. The important thing is the object of your faith. Don't you see? Like, like most people, like our neighbors are going to say, oh, that's, that's sweet for you to have faith. It's really good for society. It doesn't really matter what you believe so long as you're sincere. Right? And so people have faith in faith, not Christians. For Christians, the object of our faith is the supreme aspect of our lives. And so we don't ask, does our faith work? What we ask is, is it true? Our faith is weak, but the object of our faith is strong. And so, I mean, I just like, I love that Hebrews decided to include Abraham and Sarah as a paradigm for faith. And you know why? Because Abraham and Sarah were people in process, man. Like they super were not perfect. Most of the stories in Genesis tell us about all the really bad decisions that Abraham made. Y'all, y'all know that Abraham totally tried to offer up his wife in prostitution, right? Like who does that? He totally did that. And here we are talking about his life and just admiring his faith. Like the irony. Like, right? The irony. Listen, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child. And he said, through them, a great nation would be made. 
The problem was, of course, and y'all know this, they were really old, well past the age of having babies, but God promised that he would do it. And so, like, why didn't Abraham and Sarah always trust? I mean, why did they make all kinds of mistakes? Did they have, like, existential doubts about God? I mean, maybe they did, but that wasn't the real problem. The real problem, and hear me on this, is that Abraham didn't trust himself. And let me explain this, and we'll end here. We learn in Genesis 15 that God made a covenant with Abraham. And this is how covenants are made, you guys. Two people get a bunch of animals, like a cow, a goat, some birds, and then they cut these animals in half. It's super bloody, carcasses half inside, both on, you know, part of the body on either side. And then these two people make a deal, like they do a little slap, whatever. And then they're like, walk through the bloody animals as if to say, if one of the parties doesn't live up to their obligations of the covenant, then may what happened to these animals happen to you. That's how they did it. It was serious. And so God uses that and he makes a covenant with Abraham. And both of them had their obligations. But guess what happens? At the moment that they're supposed to walk through the slain animals, God caused a deep sleep to come upon Abraham. And then God passes through the bloody carcasses all by himself. Now, Abraham knew that God would fulfill his obligations, but he was afraid that he himself would not fulfill his part and thus forfeit all the promises of God. But chapter 11 says something really interesting. We see it in Sarah's heart. It says, look there in verse 11, that she considered God faithful who had promised. You see that? Like it wasn't their faith that was strong. What was strong was the faithfulness of the object of their faith. And so when Abraham was weak, and when he didn't fulfill his obligations in the covenant, what happened? Well, Abraham didn't pass through the slaughtered animals. God did. Abraham broke the covenant, and God was slaughtered for it. Jesus, hanging on the cross, paid the price of all of us breaking the covenant. We're weak, but he is so strong. Y'all, this is what Christianity is. Did you know that? That's what we're preaching every single Sunday. This is our faith. Would you swim in that? May that nourish our trust and our hope in Jesus and in him alone. Amen.